Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We are broadcasting across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California, where technology meets entertainment. I received a great email during the week from Miroslav Kaban in the Ukraine, who listens to this show every week with his family and some friends. And in his email, he said how much he enjoys the show. So thank you, Miroslav. It's great to know that we've got listeners in the Ukraine. I sent you off a gift yesterday, and I hope that you enjoy it. Facial recognition systems that can verify a person's identity, you know, they've been around for years and years now with security cameras and criminal databases, but now with the rapid improvements to big data analytics and artificial intelligence, of course, um, facial recognition software is about to become commonplace and change the way we live and interact with the world. Consumers are going to be able to use facial recognition to make purchases, to book tickets, like airline tickets and things like that, unlock doors, simply by looking into a camera lens and letting the software make rapid, simultaneous measurements of the face, all sorts of bits, that's as distinct as a fingerprint. This AI-powered facial recognition software will be more convenient, far more secure, and uh, create new exciting apps and hardware. At this time of uncertainty, it'll also allow the security forces to track and identify people with far more precision. I guess that's good. The latest facial recognition software from Baidu, which is, as you know, Chinese version of Google, is currently used by Didi, which is China's equivalent to Uber, to allow customers to confirm the identities of their drivers. And it's being deployed in high tourism cities across China to provide ticketless access to attractions. So you'd go to Disneyland, for example, and they would use facial recognitions rather than tickets. And Chinese security officials are deploying the technology to hunt down criminal suspects by drawing from a national ID database as well as images collected from public security cameras that dot the country. They're everywhere. So you pop up on the camera, they can identify you. It's the new applications that facial recognition is making possible. It's pretty exciting, really. When you combine facial recognition technology with deep learning, this is where it gets very tricky and very advanced. The AI technique that's emerged over the past few years, what you get is facial recognition that's good enough to identify people even when the video of them is really grainy. You know, you see uh, on the news sometimes the shots that they take from the outdoor security cameras where, boy, you can't recognise anybody. Well, facial recognition is enabling people the authorities to be able to identify people. Even if the video is shot at an odd angle, you've got it from the side, you can't see the person's full face, um, they can um, identify the person. What is really scary, let's say you've got a million people at in um, Times Square in New York on New Year's Eve, you've got a million people and three quarters of a mile back, There's a face. Now, they can pick a face out of a crowd of a million people and identify people from half a mile away. Now, just think about that. That whole sea of people, they can pick one out. It is amazing. This is one of the profound advancements and also the most disconcerting, I guess, because with extreme accuracy, the new technology can take a blurry image and identify what parts of the image should be used to create the fingerprint-like facial profile. And the results have been amazingly accurate. Now, deep learning is a relatively new form of artificial intelligence involving a network of 
complex algorithms, as you'd expect, that are loosely based on the neutral neural networks of a human brain. So these algorithms are loosely based on the neural networks of a human brain. It's basically a very potent pattern recognizer that draws from an immense amount of data that enables computers to do things like automatically add accurate colors to black and white photos or visually translate the text of a restaurant menu that's snapped by a smartphone camera. This technology has the potential to make consumer life easier with ticketless train rides and plane rides and all sorts of transactions that don't require a form of laminated identification. And it will have increasingly significant ramifications for privacy and state surveillance. Now, this is the downside. The risks to privacy and civil liberties are very substantial with technologies like facial recognition that can be used to identify and track people covertly, even remotely and on a mass scale. For example, identifying individuals at lawful protests. I reckon the public should be very sceptical of any surveillance technology implemented for consumer convenience that builds a mass surveillance network the government can appropriate appropriate for intentions beyond the scope of the original purpose. It used to be once that we could trust the government, well, didn't we? We could we could say, you know, I trust the government, and if you're a bad, if you're a good guy, you've got nothing to lose. Only the bad guys should fear. I don't believe that anymore. I used to believe it. Don't believe it anymore. Um, I think the government and um, the um, mistrust or the distrust and mistrust that's being sown by people within our governments creates a very worrying trend. And as facial recognition technology grows more powerful, it'll also heighten these privacy concerns. Like many emerging technologies that rely on collecting massive amounts of data, it's going to be up to the public and lawmakers to decide how far they want to compromise privacy in exchange for convenience. To be really effective, the government must have the trust of the public. Unfortunately, we've got people in some parts of the US who are stocking up on guns and ammunition to protect themselves from the government, as crazy as that sounds. So we're a hell of a long way away from having enough trust that people will be happy about this technology. Now, emails are being used by marketers to communicate in almost every way imaginable. Exclusive offers, customer support, order tracking, articles, apologies, warnings and customer service, and a whole bunch of things. In a digital world where everything is public, email marketing moves the conversation about your business to a much more personal environment. It's a one-on-one. How can you make the most out of it? Well, Let's go through these points. Start off with your marketing strategy. With email being the most preferred messaging channel across all age groups now, the fit should be pretty easy to discern. A successful email campaign should do three things. One, should attract new customers. Two, provide consistent and timely communication with those customers. And three, help retain existing clientele. Now, for every $1 spent on email marketing, the average return on investment is $44.25. So for each buck you spend, you get 44 and a quarter back. Now, that's a fantastic return that is unequaled any other way. Secondly, verified emails. You've got to ensure the email is verified, permission-based, and respect the boundaries of the customer. Don't wave red flags by buying lists. To increase email signups, implement a pop-up on your website and you'll automatically increase subscriptions. Three, keep customers subscribed and engaged. To avoid email fatigue, create a strategy that does not overwhelm your customer. Perhaps ebbing and flowing with emails might help with changing up the expectation. 
you may want to approach with a did you miss me campaign. Now, there's no question that emails are a lot of work, but according to the Direct Marketing Association, email marketing yields an average 4,300% return on investment. 4,300%. Where else can you get that sort of return on investment? Nowhere. Fourth, stay authentic to your messaging. Along with authenticity is consistency. Is your branding across all channels conveying your company's message? Don't lie in a prospecting email. Trying to capture attention with a re-subject line is a great example. Or pretending that you already have a relationship with the recipient. Violating trust will lose you more opportunities than gain you since trust is a key to every sale. Also bear in mind that email conversion rates are three times higher than social media rates with a 17% higher value in the conversion. So not only the conversion rates three times higher, but the value is 17% higher in that conversion. Five, triggered Triggered, <laughs> triggered email campaigns, which are based on a customer's online behavior, preferences, and profile, can be utilized if it fits within your strategy. According to yesmail.com, triggered campaigns are relevant because they respond to a specific action taken by the consumer, are timely because they immediately follow that action, they show knowledge of each subscriber. They demonstrate interest in their actions and they invite interaction between the brand and the consumer. So if you have the insight into your prospect's online behavior, preferences and profile, then it is an absolutely excellent way to go. Sixth, tie it all together. Email marketing should tie together all of your content marketing efforts. If created a new blog post, share it via email. If you if you've created a new infographic, share it via email and so on. Emails are used to introduce prospect products to existing and potential customers. So you, um, you've got your existing and your potential customers. This is a chance to introduce new products to them. It can be receipts for items purchased. You can promote new items for sale and maintain a connection with a customer as a means of their user experience. Seventh, you need to pay attention to the analytical analytics and improve to continue to improve. The numbers won't lie. Stay creative, have fun, give value, and make some money. That's the key. So that's the eighth key. Have fun, give value, and make some money. Now, we've all heard about the shared economy, but have you heard about CrowdCow? <laughs> CrowdCow, I love this. Engel Family Farms is a fifth-generation farm and cattle ranch located in Washington. And rancher Bob Engel produces some of the best grass-fed beef around. Now, what makes Engel's grass-fed beef better? Firstly, they have an abundance of nutrient-rich grass, enough to keep the cattle well-fed year-round. They have no pollution from any source whatsoever, great climate, and the grass is sensational. Secondly, Engel maintains a large open covered area so the cattle can keep warm and dry and healthy during the famously rain and cold months that they have up in Washington. The result is steers that leave very calm, comfortable lives and eat very well through the year, and that makes the beef tender and delicious. Now, we've all heard of crowdfunding. Well, crowd cow lets beef lovers jointly purchase a cow. So you get together a bunch of beef lovers and they purchase a cow, and they fill their freezers with delicious top sirloin and any other cut of their choosing. The meat is dry-aged for 14 days to enhance tenderness and flavour, that is protest, processed into steaks and roasts and ground beef. And then your cuts are individually packaged in single-serve sizes and flash frozen. Then they deliver to your door for a flat fee. 
no matter how many shares in the cow that you buy. So if you're a real meat lover, a typical refrigerator freezer compartment has a capacity that could pack between 100 and 150 pounds of meat. So go buy or crowdfund your bit of a cow and bingo, you're in meat forever. Do you get my 30-second uh, read business newsletter? We now go about to about 1.7 million daily subscribers. And if you don't get it, every day it's different. Every day it's a piece of information about some aspect of business. So I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read on most days. Occasionally, Eh, a little bit longer, but it'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. So you go out to dinner with all the people from your office, you're the knowledgeable one. You can talk to them about if you've been listening or reading the newsletter for a month, you'll have about 24 great stories of detailed information about business that you'll be able to talk about over dinner. How good would that be? Your boss will think you're a genius. You get a raise. You'll earn more money sooner rather than later. You'll be CEO of the company. You'll be driving a Lamborghini, living in a big house, and your life will have changed simply because you read my newsletter. How easy is that? Now, my guest today, after the break, is Kenny Aronoff, who's a brilliant drummer who's played on over 60 Grammy-nominated recordings and on over 300 million records sold. And he has played on over 1,300 gold, platinum and diamond certified records. Not only that, he is a hell of a good guy. He's as funny as fuck. He is great. You'll love him. He's on after the break. Now, he began playing with John Cougar Mellencamp and has followed that up with a few notables, um, Sir Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Rolling Stones, Gaga, Bruno Mars, Sting, Dylan, Springsteen, Seeger, Grohl, Elton John, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, John Ban Jovi. You get the picture, right? Rod Stewart, John Fogarty. <laughs> it never ends. There's thousands of them. And... Uh, He's a good guy, and it's a very interesting interview. And I'll be back with Kenny immediately after this short break on the Voice America Business Network. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show, where for the last five years or so, we've given you insights into the lives of somewhere around 330 of the world's most interesting business people. And we talked about what they do what challenges they faced, and we try to work out what it is that makes them tick. You know, doesn't matter what you do, it's really difficult to really make your mark in the world and be successful. And the aim of this segment is to introduce you to people that are involved in interesting and different roles and to learn their keys to success. Now, the reason I wanted to talk to today's guest is because he's a great guy, he is really funny, and he's a fellow member of Metal that I've mentioned on this program a number of times. 
His name is Kenny Aronoff, and he's played on over 60 Grammy-nominated recordings and on over 300 million records that have been sold and 1,300 gold, platinum and diamond certified records. That is not a bad feat, right? He began playing with John Cougar Mellencamp and he's followed that up with a few also rands like Sir Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, Rolling Stones, Gaga, Mars, Sting, Dylan, Springsteen, Bon Jovi, Johnny Cash, Mashing Pumpkins, Rod Stewart, John Fogarty. You get the picture. He's pretty talented, right? Okay. What Kenny learned in the process of making his dreams a reality is now a message and achievement and inspiration that he brings to audiences around the world as a speaker. Now, what the world needs is more fucking speakers, right? Because every, every speaker that's out there takes one job away from me. However, he wants you to become a rock star in your life and in your business. He's just released a book called Sex, Drums and Rock and Roll, which begins when he was a youth in the Berkshires and the Midwest, through to his early inspirations to his serious classical and jazz study, and that gave him the foundation to be able to play anything. Now, the failure of his first rock band in his early 20s freed him up for an audition with John Mellencamp, and that changed his life. His work with Mellencamp catapulted him to the top of the charts with hits like Hurt So Good, Little Pink Houses, Jack and Diane, and set the scene for the remarkable career that he's had. Hiya, Kenny. Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. You're being heard right around the world. I love it. Thank you very much, man. I'm honored that you had me come on on such short notice. Yeah. The fans that don't know, I, I we just we just met not even a week ago. At yeah, that's right. And here we are. Very best, love it. best buds. <laughs> well, you know that's kind of the way my life is, man. It's carpe diem, man. You don't why wait to do something you can do today. I I agree entirely. Yeah. Now. You've said that writing sex, drums, and rock and roll ranks as one of the most challenging experiences of your life. And I thought it was interesting that when you were with Mellencamp, he regularly maintained rehearsal hours from 11 a.m. till 11 p.m. with a five to seven break five days a week. Now, that's sort of really being disciplined. Now, you said you dedicated 14-hour days to the book. Did you get that discipline from Mellencamp or have you always had that sort of discipline? No, my, no a, a lot of my discipline came from the, the five years of training I had in uh, classical music at university and four of those years was at Indiana University which was the number one music school in classical music in the country, right. the largest music school in the world and my teacher there and uh, some other teachers you know, demanded nothing less but perfection. It's like, um, which I find there's a lack of, of that type of drive and, and intensity. Um, I mean, I don't see it as much as on students today. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but that was back then. That was just the that was the only way. That was the way, and they were there to. Uh, if you didn't measure up, you were weeded out. And I. My DNA and my personality rose to that occasion. Right. I also was, you know, I was into, I was a three-letterman jock all through high school. So I understood discipline from coaches demanding, you know, you know, 150%. The first time I learned discipline when I was in my junior year in high school and I was afraid of um, passing chemistry. And, and in my family, everybody went to college. So I knew there was no way out. I would be, <laughs> would be a disappointment. So I was not, you know, going to school is about hanging out with chicks, uh, hanging out with my, my athletic buddies and my music buddies, and then going home afterward. And after school, it was sports. And then it was a little bit of homework at home. And then it was rock and roll band rehearsal. Yeah. And, and I, the fourth ingredient was academics, and I finally got it together in that chemistry class. I realized I, I had to pass, and so I, at that moment, I, when I opened the book, I realized I'm not going to turn the page. This time, I'm not going to turn the page until I understand everything on that page. And long story short, 
I busted my ass. I got a lot of help from my teacher. I got an A in chemistry. Then the, I took got an A in physics and A in uh, advanced math. And that set the tone for me to understand what discipline is. And right. discipline is discipline is just basically doing things you don't necessarily want to do, but it gets you the results you want. And once you've learned it once, you can apply it to anything. It's, you know, it, when you're suffering through this discipline, if you are, what gets me excited and motivated is where I'm going. That's yeah. where I keep my eyes, where I'm going. Yeah. Now, I was, I was in the rock and roll business through the 60s and the 70s, and I wrote a book a few years ago about those times. And, you know, you really have to live them to believe them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, my big problem was trying to remember when I sat back 40 years later or whatever, and I'm sitting there trying to remember what the hell happened and when right. did it happen, what did I dream up and what did I imagine and what was right. real. How did you remember what happened to come up with a draft of a 600-page book initially? Well, that's a good question. Um, I kept calendars or you know day runners for every year from 1977 until present, mostly so I would know which session, which gig, where I had to be if I got paid. You know, I would check mark <laughs> if I got paid, you know, of course. I understand. And the, the miracle was I, I didn't throw them away. And then the other miracle was I found them. And that's when, because the writer that I was writing with first was, um, he came up with great questions, but I just felt like they were, we had to have some sort of organization. And that's when I went started looking for them, found them, and then I, I was... I was set free. There was a couple years that I, I think I was missing them. So I had to go. I did other things. I went on my my website and saw the records I had done, the live tours, and filled in the blanks. Believe it or not, some of the challenges were the social life because, you know, my career has always been number one. That has been my mistress. And I have always put that ahead of everything. So I had to try to, I mean, I never wanted to write this book. It was I was convinced to write it. And the reason why I didn't want to write it because I knew it was going to be a pain in the ass and that it and I knew that I was going to have to take charge of it at some point. Right. But I got talked into it because it, they made it sound like, well, the writer said, "Man, you just dictate this stuff to me." And he made it sound like he turned it into an Oscar, you know, and <laughs> yeah. it worked that way. But that's what I learned a lot about. I learned a lot about myself because I don't look back that much I only look forward because what's the point in looking back absolutely well, I agree but now that I have looked back that's what made me reevaluate my life and go like well how did I do this why can't he earn all that's where I came up with the seven keys to a successful life and career because those were the seven things that made me successful I had to I wanted to organize like why how I would not have done that at this point in my life if I hadn't written a book. So the book became a lesson for me and now I'm writing the next book which is based on those seven, you know, keys. Yeah, that keys. yeah. How long did it take you to write the book? It was a four-year process and when you mentioned those 14, 16-hour days, those were on my days off on tour with John Fogarty and, um, you know, I mean, I had a deadline. I was six months late. I tried to buy the book back to bury it. They convinced me not to. They said the editor will fix it, and he did. And the reason why I spent so much time writing it was because it wasn't in my voice enough. Right. I felt like it was someone else's voice, so I, I basically went over every single page over and over and over and over again. And when I felt like it wasn't in my voice, I rewrote it, rewrote everything. Yeah. So. so the second problem that I had when I wrote my book was waiting till my son was in his twenties and my mother passed. Um, oh. you know, wives are yet another issue. Oh yeah. <laughs> how, how did you? You know, I'm sure you've had one hell of a life out there. How did you decide what to include in the book and what to leave out? Well, Bob, <laughs> you're nailing it. I mean, the challenges were my two divorces the two relationships I had with women that, you know, we're all good friends right now. And the challenge was how to deal with that and then in the consider the present uh, relationship, my wife, Georgina. And um, those those two things were a big challenge. And of course, the Mellencamp divorce, I call that a divorce too. And what I decided was, at first I wrote kind of everything, some pretty yeah. wild stories. I was 
you know, I was the guy that lived for the moment. You know, I, I mean, I was not the most honorable guy in my marriages. You know, we were young. The audience was young. Girls were throwing their underwear at us. And we weren't Motley Crue, but we were close. <laughs> and um, we were just being guys, you know. Um, and we were all too young to be married. You know, we shouldn't have been married during that time. And uh, so what I ended up doing was I was that was the biggest challenge trying to figure out how am I going to do this? where I'm honest, but respectful. And so what I did was I left out, and I did the same, by the way, with partying. You know, I didn't <laughs> have to list every single substance, you know. And, and and so I decided that I would not, I didn't have that many scenes in the book, uh, were, were very detailed scenes of wildness. I implied that it was happening enough so you knew it was happening. Yes, stuff yeah. went on, but I didn't need to list it. it what, this wasn't supposed to be that kind of book. I love the title, Sex, Drums, Rock and Roll, but the book isn't primarily about sex, even though sex is the first word. And I clarified that right at the beginning. Yeah. If you're looking for the, the, um, the book where the drummer has sex with 4,000 women, this isn't the book. But I did say it. <laughs> if you're looking for the book. Only 4,000. Jesus, I thought you were a good player. Well, God, you're a big that, disappointment. I know. <laughs> horrible, horrible. I've, and, and, uh, you know, my mom said, I had to warn my 90-year-old mom. I said, listen, mom, there's a scene with me with two lesbian girls. They pick me up. And she goes, why did you have to say such a thing in your book? I can't believe you did that. I said, mom, <laughs> you should see the stuff I left out. <laughs> This yeah. is like the, this was the, the compromise, you know. <laughs> and I felt I felt that if I didn't have some of that in there, yeah, who know me and know that whole sure. scene wouldn't take me seriously. So I tried to be classy about it, you know, and and still be honest. And you don't have to tell every detail. That's not my. Yeah. That was my point of the book. Yeah. Well, being with a couple of lesbians, that that's pretty classy. Um, <laughs> I thought they were real classy. <laughs> now, to be successful as an entrepreneur or in the music business, it's bloody hard. And, you know, yeah. both have really high failure rates. Of all the people who started off in the rock and roll business, very few of them make it through to the end of the tunnel. And the failure rate in business, particularly with entrepreneurs, is about 97%. It's what? probably pretty close in the rock and roll business. Yeah. So what are the most important you know, if you're sitting out there now and you're a young entrepreneur and you're listening to this, what are the most important attributes that you need if you're going to be successful? Well, the, 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 the three given, and I'm not going to tell you anything you don't already know. First one is self-discipline. It all starts there. And as I explained, self-discipline is doing things that you don't necessarily want to do, but you, get, you hopefully will get the results that you want. Yeah, from self-discipline. Hard work fueled by passion and education. That's my second key. Hard work is like, that's a given, man. If you do nothing, you get nothing. It's like math. Zero equals zero. Yep. So you got to do something. You have to. And, and, and just anything. Make a phone call. Um, get on the computer. Do something every day. Forward motion. Hard work is like a vehicle through life. It's like my a car or a plane or or whatever you use to get somewhere. That's what hard work is. Yep. And then passion, fortunately for me, I found my passion at a very young age. I want to be a drummer. I want to be in a rock band. And, and then education, we have to keep learning. I mean, you have to keep learning because things change so fast. Okay, those days, guys, yeah. Yeah. The third thing is, you create a plan that you execute to reach your goals. A lot of people have ideas, but they don't follow through. In all these three things, by the way, this isn't one year or five years or ten years. This is a lifetime. You know, a teacher, when I was at Indiana University, said to my mom, first day I got there, she was concerned, like any mom would be, says, you know, Mr. Gaber, that was my teacher, do you think Kenny's going to make it? Do you think he's talented enough? Uh, you know, uh, what do you think? She just looked at my mom and he went, 
Mrs. Aronoff, ask me that question in 10 years. I have no fucking clue. <laughs> and you didn't say the F word, but what he was saying was, it's up to Kenny. Yeah. It's not up to me. It's not up to you. I can't guarantee you anything. It's up to Kenny. And guess what? 10 years after that year, 1972, is 1982. I'm with Camp and we won two Grammys and I had Basically, two number one hit singles, Jack and I and Hurts Are Good. My career as a rock star was launched. I had made it, but that was just the beginning. Um, So those three things, self-discipline, hard work, fueled by passion, education, and then, you know, creating a plan that you execute to reach your goals is, is the foundation. Now, here comes the bigger thing here. Why Kenny Aronoff? There's a lot of great drummers. Like you said, the, the the percentage rate of being successful is extraordinarily low and, and you know, not being successful is very high. And yeah. that doesn't mean you're not a great musician. There are some breaks. I got with John Mellencamp, but I made my success. That guy fired me in L.A. after being in the band for five weeks. We were, I, was, I didn't understand what the purpose of a drummer is with a singer-songwriter or a band of this nature that is is to be played on the radio. Right. My vocabulary was limited in that area. So when we got into the studio after only being in the band five weeks, they kind of picked up on that. The producer wanted to get the record done. Back then, you built everything around the drums. Sure. Everything. So the feel, the sound. So John, here's a crucial, crucial moment in my business career as you want to put it and I had no idea that I was this guy you know that saying fight or flight well I'm fight or fight (laughs) I'm Bill Belichick like I said at metal the guy and the Patriots the guy at 21 to 3 at halftime losing is not looking at the score but thinking what can we do to win this game so intuitively when John was saying you go home I was going nope Nope, 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 nope. I screamed at him. I said, I'm not going home. And I scrambled to negotiate a deal that would be suitable for the both of us. And it, it was like, I was like, God, I didn't even know what I, it was just coming out of me. And I went, yeah. well, am I still your drummer? And he was perplexed and was looking at me like, what's he getting? And I went, am I still your drummer? And he goes, yeah. I said, well, well I'm going to stay here. And, um, yeah, I'm going to watch those drummers play my parts, and I'm going to learn from them and benefit. And you're going to benefit because I'm your drummer, and you don't have to pay me. That was the key word. You don't have to pay me, and I'll sleep on the floor. And that's exactly what I did, except I did get a bed. The point is, if I'd gone home, who knows what would have happened. The other point is, wow, that's an interesting characteristical trait about me. My character was to fight for what I passionately wanted. And there's always a way to negotiate something. Basically, I'm telling everybody out there, if you get fired, tell your boss you're not fired. No, just joking. You can't fire me. You can't fire me. I'll work for free. Yeah. (laughs) You talk about um, having a plan. Now, in your business, as in most businesses, um, things change very quickly. How do you plan ahead when you don't know what the hell's going to happen tomorrow well you have to have a, a you have to have a, a, an immediate plan for the present but you have to have your eyes constantly watching like the trends what's happening yeah. and it also a key factor is what resonates in you because you're always going to do what's passionate and desirable for you you'll do that the best so you got to be honest with yourself Bullshit everybody else, but be honest with yourself. If you yeah. don't, if you're not honest with yourself, you may not make it because no, you, well, you got. Yeah. I mean, that's the eleventh commandment. Don't bullshit yourself. Yeah. You know what I mean? Be honest with yourself. Be just be. Admit to yourself what you are and what you're capable of. And um, so yeah, the the trends in music. Like I mean, look at. I mean, I've got all these gold records, and like you said, I could have 1,300 on my walls if I bought them all from the records I played on. The thing is, that has already happened. That it does It's not bullshit, but it's not 
what is happening now? They're not making records now, uh, or very few, or it's not a commodity like it used to be. It does, yeah. Nobody buys them, you know? So that is like changed. I still have a studio because it's my brand. I'm going to record seven songs on two different artists on Saturday, Sunday, I'll be doing three different bands, four more songs. Monday, I'll be doing five songs from another band. That's a that's pretty big uh, clump. That's a lot of work in recording in these days. And yeah. that's in my studio. I I heard once when the, 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 the budgets were great, a, 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 a project coordinator said, hey, Kenny, if you happen to be in L.A., I wasn't living here yet. Uh, I have a project for you. I went, what do you mean? Wait, 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 wait. I said, what do you mean if I happen to live in LA? Are the session budgets changing? She said, yeah. I got an apartment the next month. So now I'm investing in me. Yeah. I didn't have to pay that $1,500 or get a rental car up until that point. But I was willing to do that to make sure I didn't lose you know, my market share as a session guy. Yeah. Eventually, I, I had to sell my house in Indiana, and I moved out here. Eventually, then I saw the budgets go down, down, down. I went, I can't not record. That's my brand, touring and recording. So I got a studio and invested about $100,000 in great equipment, and I've kept that going. And then I've gotten websites. You know, I've got a very, very expensive website now. and, and Good website. Thank you, and um, I'm uh, and that took a year and a half, you know, of tweaking. It's still not done the way I want it. I got to do a few more things, but the point is, I made moves in the business. I don't, I didn't change the rules. The rules changed. I yeah. adapted to the rules, and you know, my seventh step and key is staying focused and stay relevant. I mean, like a good example of somebody who didn't stay focused was Kodak Film. They got out of focus. Exactly. And you know, I mean, I mean, and, you know, I mean, somebody else could be trying to do the same thing I'm doing there. I'm blessed with that. I had already made a name for myself. But, man, sometimes you could be looked at as, oh, he's the old guy. He's washed up. So you've got to be able to. There's so many factors involved. My number six key is a healthy life is a wealthy life. I mean, mental, physical and emotional health is number one. If that goes, everything else goes. It's good, yeah. Right. So, you know, I'm blessed with good genes, but man, I work at it. I think about what I eat. I think about exercise. I think about, uh, I got an eight-step uh, eight uh, healthy life kind of guide. We don't have to get into it now, but th there are things you do that you have to do to be, you know, I'm 64 in March, and, you know, I, people are asking me, at 20 years old, how do I keep my endurance going? I'm like, you're asking that at 20? So th there's a lot of components. I know I've, uh, I've just, the answer to your question is very long, but no, it's I, good. people get a feel of th it's not like you make it and that's it. As a matter of fact, this is a big problem with corporations now. I have a, a buddy of mine who's part of a team that goes into corporations Keep people doing what they did to get successful, to stay successful. There's a famous golfer who won seven, seven PJ tournaments in 10 months, seven. And he, they asked him, why, how do you do this? He said, because I'm still practicing six hours a day, seven days a week. The same thing that got me to win my first PJ tournament, I'm doing to continue to win PJ tournaments. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So. Which artists inspired you the most musically? It doesn't have to be somebody you've worked with, but who was your inspiration? Oh, well, my story is this. I, you know, when I was a little kid, there was nothing to watch on TV. We had a black and white RCA with the rabbit ears and a tinfoil on it. We got snow. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. We got one and a half channels. Yeah. I never watched TV. So me and my brother and sister were out playing, and my mom screamed at us one day to come into the family room. Of course, I thought I was in trouble. Yeah. Getting ready to get spanked or something. <laughs> and they're on the TV with the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show. Right. That, I went, I had never seen anything or felt anything like that. And, um, so I, I, I naively asked my mom to call the Beatles up and um, get get me in the band. <laughs> and, um, How did that go for you? 
The funny thing is, you've worked with McCartney and and with um, Ringo Starr, so you, you're well, sort of halfway there. Well, um, at that point, I didn't know that, so I, <laughs> and then I was mesmerized by uh, Ringo Starr and the drums because me being a hyper energetic, athletic guy. I was just drawn to the the energy of the drums, and I asked my mom for a, a drum set, and I got the same response, which was zero. <laughs> and, then, um, and then I said, you know, I want to grow my hair like those guys, and I, I definitely want those girls chasing after me. And, you know, I love the whole thing. I was like, sign me up. So she didn't call the Beatles. I didn't get a drum set. But in two weeks, I started my own band. And I, I was working, uh, making enough money. I took a loan from my parents to get a snare drum and a cymbal. I stood up and played. The band was called the Alley Cats. And like you said, the, the, the beautiful end of the story is 50 years later, I'm playing with McCartney and Ringo, the two remaining Beatles, honoring them for that same show, the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> and it was like, so I go, dreams do come true. Yeah. But. So, not by accident. Not by accident. I made it happen. Yeah. To be relevant. If it's to be, it's up to me. You know. Huh? If it's to be, it's up to me. You can't. Uh, you, know, you can't rely on anybody else. If it's uh, to be, it's up to me. Yeah. Which which artist that you've worked with has the most commitment to their craft? Somebody who's absolutely fanatically dedicated to what they do. Probably well, all of them, but probably all of them. But who stands out? Really. I mean, the ones I played with that really stand out, Bon Jovi, seriously, as a businessman and as a singer-star, he's a workaholic like me. He can't stop. John Fogarty, Creedence Clearwater, you know, the yeah. guys from some of the greatest songs ever, ever written and recorded. Yeah, his uh, kids went to school with my son, so, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. So I've, oh. I've met and spoken with John many times. Oh, okay, cool. And 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 Billy Corgan from the Smashing Pumpkins was right. an intense, focused, driven, obsessed uh, guy. And all these people built like empires, you know. Sure. Um, you know, Mellencamp, same way. You know, I mean, Bob Seger. I mean, but they all, yeah. Yeah, they're all, they're all committed. Springsteen, for sure. Yeah. Al John, for sure. What um, you were telling us the other day about your frenetic schedule, and I couldn't remember where you started, but I know you ended up in Germany or somewhere over a period of three or four days. But what? How do you? Can you give us an example? And how the hell do you keep that up? How do you, all right. Well, here's the thing. There is no no in my vocabulary. I will fight to get everything done, which is is good, but it can be a little bit stupid because i got to prioritize sometimes the, the, the more important things. But the story you're talking about was it was only like, geez, a couple weeks ago, if not less, I did a gig with a band I played with on and off for 26 years called the Bodines yep. uh, in Las Vegas. I was supposed to fly to Mumbai that day, but I actually bumped the flight to Mumbai back just so I could do that one show in Vegas with the Bodines on on uh, February 8th. On February 9th, I flew Vegas to L.A., L.A. to Dubai, Dubai to Mumbai, landed at 2 a.m. on February 11th. I got to bed at 6, no, I got to bed at 8 in the morning, woke up at 10, rehearsed from 11 to 2, went back to my room. While everybody sight, was sightseeing, I decided, you know what, don't push it, buddy, You you because this was just the beginning of the trip. <laughs> so that next day, I had to get up at 6.30, 7.30 breakfast, 8.30 in the car, 8-hour rehearsal and sound check. Back to the hotel to pack, went and did the show. Back in the hotel at 11.30 p.m., slammed a couple of drinks down with Billy Gibbons, got my clothes, and went to the airport, and I was on a plane at 4 a.m., uh, 50 hours later from landing uh, to Dubai, Dubai to Houston, and in Houston was a private jet waiting for me. Guy picks me up, brings me to the jet, we get in the jet, and we fly to San Antonio. Two and a half hours later, I'm on stage with John Fogarty. <laughs> the San Antonio rodeo, but it keeps going. The next morning I wake up and I'm on Don Henley's jet with the Fogarty band yeah. flying to New York City. Thank God that was a night off. 
and I'm trying to catch up with all my business, constantly yeah. always doing business in the morning at night. The next day we had a show outside of New York, the next day Connecticut, and the next day I flew all the way across the United States back to L.A., and the next day I met you. That was last Saturday. <laughs> Where's Kenny Aronoff going to be in 10 years' time? Well, 10 years' time I'll be speaking and writing books. I, that's where I see myself. It's interesting. Uh, I was approached to do a documentary and a TV show. We'll see if that happens. I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying taking my life experience and... I guess one way of saying is I'm monetizing my life experience by speaking, writing. Um, I'm open to, it, it feels like I'm just going to the next level. Not, I'm not saying it's better. It's just at the next level. You take this experience, you have wisdom, and you also are ready to do something with that information and that facility. And one way so far what I've seen is the speaking thing, which is I have a show, it's a, a movie, and a, a, then a live performance that segues into me speaking, and then I interweave my message. I want to deliver, and I'm constantly working on it, a benefit for my audience that they can take away something that they re learn from me, if not reignite in them what they already know, because I say it in my way, and, uh, you know, give positive energy out, and get paid for it and move on to the next thing and maybe that'll lead to some more TV and some other stuff but there's no retirement in my uh, in my uh, schedule Kenny thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard radio show now you can learn more about Kenny at Kenny Aronoff that's K-E-N-N-Y-A-R-O-N-O-F-F dot com and I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard radio show and Voice America Business Network after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show. Coming to you on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where technology meets entertainment. Now, although the world's been changing frenetically since advertising began 100 and whatever number of years ago, traditional marketers and advertisers have stuck to strategies based on four tried and true rules. The first one is brand awareness to create recall and drive sales, the attributes of the product, the price, and, of course, satisfied customers. Well, reality is that none of those four things work anymore. And research says that some 87% of all marketing and advertising is focused on one or a combination of those four elements. And around 95% of all businesses fail. Yet advertising and marketing effectiveness has decreased dramatically over the past decade. Numerous studies, including the Levi study in England, demonstrate advertising failure rates of 87 to 95%. What? 95% of what we're doing doesn't work, so what do we do? We keep doing it. The University of Toronto Research demonstrates that when respondents were asked to match up taglines and products after watching advertisements, less than 27% were able to do so. And the more the ads were shown, the worse the recall became, falling to 15% after just three viewings. Now, it's long been accepted that recall depends on frequency and that most people experience an exponential jump in their ability to recall after seven exposures. Well, where did these facts come from? I think somebody just sat around and made them up because they're not true and they don't make sense. 
if the rest of the world had been so complacent about updating its guidelines, particularly such obvious inaccuracies as the marketing industry has, we'd still be in horses and buggies and sending smoke signals. It's really pathetic. Despite the extraordinary proliferation of communication mediums, each have their own applications in which they are effective to varying degrees. There are two essential causes of most companies' lousy marketing performance. In what other discipline would it be acceptable for leaders to know their applications are only 5 to 10% effective? You'd think that they would have gotten the message 20 years ago. 20 years ago, there was an expression, 50% of all advertising is wasted. The only problem is we don't know which half. Well, you think they would have got the message then. It's gone from 50% to almost 5%. Now, the business revolution is occurring very rapidly, and the marketing and advertising industry is just struggling to keep up. The media environment is undergoing a revolution the likes of, of which have never been seen before, yet many agencies and their clients are just complacently doing what they've been doing for over 60 years. So let's look at marketers' performance over the last 10 years. According to Harvard Business School, 45 out of 51 categories of businesses are commoditized. That means that the customer does not differentiate between various competitors on anything except price, which is a recipe for disaster. Who created that? Marketers. Corporate boards are now controlled by financially-minded executives. There's not a marketing person in sight of most boards. So despite knowledge that long-term success, brand building and developing loyal customers requires long-term planning, most financial people force marketers into three-month performance cycles. Marketers are also forced to approach people in financial roles for marketing budgets. The problem is that many money people don't understand what marketing is, far less seriously question use of funds and performance. It's okay as long as it's within budget. That is ridiculous. And this has happened because marketers do not take responsibility and do not produce return on investment figures for all the elements within the marketing portfolio. The marketing portfolio is every touch point with a customer and every action taken by the company or anybody who works for or with the company that in any way comes in contact with a potential or a current client. This includes not only advertising, PR, direct, online and other traditional marketing disciplines, but down to the performance a potential customer encounters when he or she walks into reception, phones the company, applies for credit, receives a delivery, a repair and so on. Too many marketers also don't talk the language of business. The corporate world talks in terms of investment, ROIs, yields, terms that have both qualifiable and quantifiable values. Most marketers still talk about reach frequently, CPM, hits, all of which is absolute crap that means nothing. Today's technology provides the ability to measure everything we do, yet marketers are still primarily unaccountable. Of course, Audience size means squat. The only thing that actually counts is how much stuff you sold. Now, marketers can't be taken seriously when the majority of the profession delivers poor performance. They don't get respect because respect has not been earned. Until marketers perform more effectively, no one is going to take their efforts seriously. I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com. Enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read, sometimes a little bit longer, and we'll keep you up to date with all the business news that's important. You'll be able to astonish your boss, your girlfriend, your spouse with your depth of business knowledge. Can't hurt you. It's the way to the top. Now, remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. It's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. You know, when you're not learning, somewhere else, somewhere else is. And when the two of you meet, if they know more than you do, they'll win. And we didn't do all this work to get where we are to let some other bastard win, did we? 
Next week, we'll be back broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard, where technology meets entertainment, and I hope that you can join me again. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.